Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Grist Analytics captures and trends data across the brewery so you can see issues as they are happening, not several batches later. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and see scheduling predictions from anywhere. Connect Grist with your ERP platform to cover your brewery from production to finance. So one study would claim one thing for one strain, the other study would claim something slightly different for another strain. It became more uh, frequent for customers to tell us I did this PCR and this strain doesn't come up as you say it is, or this is not a lager because the analysis we have done um, says this or that. This week on the show, different paths of evolution and answers to questions about the genetic identity of commercially available yeast strains. Hi, I'm Fabio and I'm the R&D manager at White Labs and I'm based in Copenhagen. Fabio, what is a hybridization event? So an hybridization event is when the DNA from two different parental strains gets merged in an, uh, and it creates a strain that has uh, DNA from both parents. So not so different from what happens in mammals and other superior organisms. But we usually uh, mention this when we're talking about organisms on like bacteria or yeast where they source DNA from other uh, strains, and when they merge, they get uh, DNA from both parents. Okay. And there's been some developments over the years and some news uh, as this relates to ale and lager strains. Talk about hybridization events in regards to that. So uh, ale strains are known to be from the Saccharomyces cerevisia species, the same species that makes bread and uh, wine. Uh, but the strains from lager actually came from an hybridization event. They are actually the hybridization of two different uh, species. 
One parent is always Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the traditional ale strain. But the other parent, it was unknown for a very long time, is a strain that is very cold tolerant and that produces very little amount of uh, flavor and aroma compound. So what happened was that probably at some point in Bavaria, in very cold conditions where normal Saccharomyces cerevisiae was struggling and it was stressed, he ended up looking for ways of surviving that stress. And one of them involved merging or mating with a, a completely different species that was available, uh, that was Saccharomyces eubianus. And then this happened a few times in, in history. Uh, but what happened was that we got a new species that has DNA from Saccharomyces and DNA from Saccharomyces eubianus and created this new species that is Saccharomyces pastorianus. We can kind of put those, um, those, uh, those lager strains into a couple of different buckets, right? T talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so traditionally there was only two main buckets. Uh, recently, a third one, a third group appeared. And uh, that group is mainly from lab-made hybrids uh, that some uh, labs around the world created their own version of Saccharomyces pastorianus. But typically, we have uh, two main groups. One is usually called type 1 or SAS, and is basically uh, a hybrid of the uh, Saccharomyces eubianus and cerevisiae, where most of the DNA that that strain contains comes from the eubianus parent. So if we had to say in percentage, 60 to 70% of the DNA comes from the eubianus and the remaining 25-30 comes from cerevisia. And this makes that this strain is much more efficient at colder temperatures because it has much more DNA from the cold-resistant parent uh, and also makes much less aromas uh, in the beer. However, is less efficient at fermenting maltose and maltotrios, and it also is slower at fermenting. So this is, for instance, what was originally isolated at the Carlsberg uh, uh, labs. All right. So that's the famous Carlsberg strain. So tell us about the other bucket. So the other bucket that uh, was originally isolated, in this case from Heineken, is uh, from a different event. Uh, a hybridization event because the final strain has a, a complete different uh, type of uh, content in the, from the two parents. So in this case, it's the, this group called Frobock, uh, and most of the commercial uh, strains available in the world, including the White Labs ones, are from the Frobock family. They actually have more of a 50-50% content of the, both parents. So these strains usually are more are efficient at fermenting. They can ferment maltose and maltotrios more efficiently as well, but they do tend to not be as efficient at, at the lower end of the temperatures. Uh, and at the same time, they do produce a little bit more um, aroma uh, in the beer because they have more the DNA from the cerevisia parent. But they are so much more robust and so much more faster that they end up being taking over uh, the industry. So almost everything that is commercially made is made with yeast from this group. And so we think these two, Saas and Froberg, these were two separate different different hybridization events, right? Exactly. 
mainly because of the way the, the DNA was rearranged. So if this was from the same um, event, the, they will overlap to some extent, even if they potentially lost some of the DNA that uh, from one of the parents, they would, uh, all the rearrangements that can be detected in the DNA would be identical. But you could see that basically this uh, don't share enough of, uh, of those. So they, uh, the probability is that this happened in two independent events uh, and two different families uh, appear that would produce similar beers under the same generic conditions of lagering and cold fermentation in Germany, um, but uh, into distinct moments. Do we know anything about when those events occurred? There are some uh, ways of calculating it. Um, but what usually scientists uh, do is that there's a known mutation rate that is, uh, if you grow cells a certain amount of times, a certain amount of um, uh, mutations accumulate naturally. It happens in all, every microorganism. So what uh, some scientists uh, um, could do was by comparing the genomes between uh, the different uh, strains and the parental strains that were known from that time, uh, you can more or less estimate that this happened more or less in the 1700s, where those strains are different enough from and they diverge from potentially some common ancestors, and then they evolved and accumulate a certain amount of mutations. So it is, it is expected that they, uh, this uh, hybridization happened more or less around that time. All right, that's a good overview on the background, but let's get into the project that, that you did. I guess talk about how you first got interested in this project uh, initially anyway. Uh, this project, uh, we've been interested in, in it for a while. Um, a lot of these m m high throughput sequencing projects use white lab strains because we have such a, a great catalog. Uh, but every time someone would sequence the genome based also in the study we did a few years ago, they would come up with slight different conclusions. So one study would claim one thing for one strain. The other study would claim something slightly different for another strain. And that comes to methodologies, DNA extraction, where potentially some of these labs source the strains. If they, so we always kept an eye out for what people were claiming about the strains we work with and that we produce. But in the most recent years, uh, PCR and sequencing become much more available for the breweries as well. Uh, people are more comfortable with doing DNA uh, extractions and DNA analysis. So it became more uh, frequent for customers to tell us, I did this PCR and this strain doesn't come up as you say it is, or this is not a lagger because the analysis we have done um, says this or that. So we, when that, at some point, it just became that we decided to make a simple project. The idea would be that we would do it as simple and as low cost as possible so anyone interested in it could do it as well. But we would put all the strains that we had uh, heard of of having one or the other way uh, uncommon conclusions in the studies or feedback from customers. We would just put them all them together and then apply a little bit of genetics, but a little a bit of old, old school microbiology to test if they were or not hybrids and uh, Saccharomyces pastorianus. All right, cool. Well, talk about the various strains whose genetic identity had been sort of called into question. What, how many were there? And tell us a little bit about them. So the most common ones uh, were uh, WLP-800, uh, 
um, and WP838, so the Pilsner Lager and the Southern German Lager. A lot of those were called by studies as Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so they were claiming that they did not have enough Eubianus content to be uh, considered a hybrid. Um, and then there was the other way where something like um, WP051, California 5, or the Kolsch strain 029 were also put in if they were or not um, uh, ales and if they should also be classified instead of, as lagers. So it was a little bit of these strains that kept popping up and then that we put a little bit more effort in figuring out what they were. Okay. Fabio, the concept of genotype versus phenotype seems to come up a lot on this show. Luckily, there are some pretty strong differences in phenotype between Ubonis and Cerevisiae. Describe what's unique about the hybrids. So, and this is a great question. Um, because the hybrids inherit DNA from Eubianus, they also inherit things that are unique to Eubianus. So what, two of the things that are more useful for a brewer or for brewing science to differentiate uh, hybrid strains is the capacity to use a sugar that is nothing to do with brewing, but it is something that only hybrids can do. That is the melobios. Uh, there is a sugar that is very close to lactose, but hybrids will have what is called melobiase. is an enzyme that you can only be, that cerevisia does not have, um, and because Elbianos is a very cold resistant um, species, it actually is very sensitive to higher temperatures. So if you grow a hybrid at 37 degrees, a normal cell carmesis cerevisia will struggle but be able to grow. But some, uh, some strains that have high content of Elbianos will actually struggle and not grow at all or have minimum growth. Okay. So. You took a two-pronged approach to get to the bottom of this. Describe the first part. So we initially, we just went the, the easy way. We were just like, everyone is claiming something based on DNA, so we'll just do the same. And we devised something uh, so simple that actually a high school in Denmark reached out to us because they wanted to implement this as one of the, the things they do for seniors. Oh, so this cool. is as simple as something that can be applied in a high school. So we just went to the literature and we find some very simple uh, information based on conserved regions of the Cerevisia uh, genome and conserved regions of the Eubianus genome. And by conserved regions, it means unique regions that do not mutate or change all the time. So something that is stable genetically, but that is unique to each of the two species. So if I test some strain, random strain, blind testing that is a hybrid, I will detect the Bayanos. If I test something that is Cerevisia, I will detect Cerevisia. So we just combine these two tests together as a PCR, simple PCR, just one of those old school running a gel to see the result kind of PCR, where if there was one band only, that would be a pure Saccharomyces cerevisiae. If it was two bands, then it means that it could detect DNA from both parents and that will become a hybrid. And, and that's how we first detected the, that some of these things that were being claimed before was not necessarily as uh, they work uh, in reality. How did you choose your controls and how could you be sure that those strains weren't hybrids? 
So one of the controls, one of the obvious ones, uh, was WP001, um, because we, we know a lot. We know probably as much as about 001 as we know about all the others together. That's how much we work with it, how much all the trials, all the, the information, all the tests we do end up with a WP001 as a control or as a part of the trial. So we were very confident on, on that one as a control for a pure Saccharomyces cerevisia uh, strain. Um, the other one we decided was WP820. Uh, and we decided that because uh, we work closely with uh, a lot of universities, especially here uh, in Copenhagen. We have two very close universities that run brewing programs. And we always hosting students doing theses using our strains or applying our strains in some new uh, project. So we had applied this kind of uh, methodology to uh, our Oktoberfest strain, the WPA20. So we knew for sure that that one would come up as a hybrid and that this would work um, perfectly with that strain. So by having those two with the DNA extracted at the same time, the PCR performed from the exact same solutions and run in the exact same gel, we would basically consider that anything that was similar to WP001 would have the profile of Cerevisia, and anything that had the profile of Pastorianus would match WP820. All right, very good. Let's hear about the PCR results. So the PCR results matched what was known for most of the strains, which is not surprising. We did an extensive uh, array of lager strains, and all of them, or almost all of them, came as uh, hybrids. Um, there was a few things that confirmed what uh, some of these uh, other big uh, sequencing projects said, like California Ale, California Five uh, Ale strain is actually a hybrid, um, and the WP five one five Antwerp Ale strain is also a hybrid. So they w were being used as ale strains typically, but they are genetically uh, lager strains. Coming up. And that you don't necessarily need to sequence everything, to qPCR everything. Sometimes you get a lot of information if you know what you are looking for in very low cost, low tech solutions. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by BSG, North America's exclusive distributor of Wireman Specialty Malts. For over 140 years, Wireman Specialty Malts has been helping brewers around the world bring authentic German flavor to their brew houses. From caramel malts to the Barca line and heirloom barley varieties, Wireman's malts are sought after and celebrated for their performance and flavor. Bring a taste of Bavaria to your brew house and explore Wireman's complete portfolio at bsgcraftbrewing.com backslash Wireman. Get to know Proximity Malt. 
We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top-quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry-favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The 2024 Barley Improvement Conference is January 10th and 11th in San Diego. Don't miss the January 10th webinar, Brewing in a Beer with SmartBev Near Yeast, a Craft Brewer's Perspective. District Michigan meets in Kalamazoo January 10th. District St. Louis meets January 18th and 19th at Anheuser-Busch. The 2024 Ontario Technical Conference is January 31st through the 2nd at the Pillar and Post. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins February 22nd. District Great Plains has their annual meeting February 23rd and 24th at Mark One Electric Company in Kansas City. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 6th. It's time to save the date for the 2024 World Brewing Congress. That's August 17th through the 20th in Minneapolis. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. Now back to the show. Above 800, uh, the Pilsner Lager that has been known uh, or described as being uh, a Saccharomyces cerevisia was also matches that in our PCR. So even though it's been using as a lager strain for a very long time, uh, is actually a Saccharomyces cerevisia strain. So this is an example where evolution took a different route. And instead of an hybridization event to cope with the stresses of very cold uh, fermentation, 
this strain probably, while still being genetically a Saccharomyces cerevisiae, accumulated uh, mutations and ways of doing some of this metabolism in a way that it survives under cold fermentation and is a very popular strain used for lager production. That's interesting. That There's got to be a, um, a lot of value in identifying a strain like that, right? Yeah, I think so. I think both the WP051, that is a lacquer that is traditionally used at warmer temperatures, or this uh, ale strain uh, like the WP800 that it could put, is used in very cold temperatures. It could be give some freedom to brewers, potentially save some energy. So it's always we didn't really got to the point of testing this in real life, but these strains here uh, could potentially open up that brewers could tweak the process a little bit and potentially save some energy by fermenting a few degrees colder or warmer, whatever it is that they are aiming for when it comes to flavor profile or energy savings. But there is definitely the potential. Uh, we still treated them the same. So these strains evolved to do a particular uh, fermentation profile and we, we have been propagating them as, as always, even after we, we knew this information. Because we don't want them to change into something else that uh, is not what the people like. So we still treat them exactly the same. We still propagate them. And we recommend people that have been happy using them in a certain way for their beers to keep that recipe the same. But if you want sometimes to harvest yeast and repitch in some other conditions and maybe do a slightly warmer fermentation or tweak, uh, apply this to a different beer, I, I think this is probably a lot of fun for the brewers. You've got the 800 strain, which uh, appears to have evolved instead of instead of undergoing this hybridization event, and then you've got the uh, a bunch of other strains that had you know went through this hybridization event. I guess presumably we don't know which occurred first, right? We don't know if 800 adapted in the 1700s uh, or more recently, or maybe we do know that. I don't know, but uh, I'm just wondering if you have anything. If there's anything else to talk about that's interesting in regard to sort of this theme of like these two different paths to get to sort of the same result or similar result, I guess. Yeah, we don't really know much about when these kind of mutations uh, occurred and a lot of these smaller mutations accumulate over a long period of time. So it's, it's probably not something that happened overnight, uh, while uh, hybridization in a way actually happens almost overnight because when they finally merge and the, the line stabilizes, then you have a brand new species. Um, but these, uh, these mutations in WLP800 is probably something that was following uh, uh, the brewer's procedure, harvesting and repitching over and over. You keep selecting for something that you like, and then you force the strain to do this at a certain temperature, and eventually one strain in that mix, because the, at that moment there was no pure um, cultures, there was nothing isolated and repitched in a very clean way. So you just have a population where every strain or every cell does a slight different uh, uh, job or has a slight different genetic uh, makeup. And you end up selecting for the one that does the job the best under the conditions that you give it. Um, so this is the, a little bit the way that uh, brewers selected for things that are POF negative because they end up selecting a batch that didn't have that aroma. So WP800 probably evolved because there was not a chance to to hybridize with Pastoriana, with sorry Albianos. Maybe Albianos was not available in that tank, but he could still make the beer uh, the same. So it's a little bit how 
now there's the people evolving strains to create new strains and people hybridizing strains to create strains with new uh, uh, functions or new genes. So it's always a little bit of this evolution. So like uh, someone said, life finds a way. That's right. Okay. Is there anything else you want to mention about the, the strains that didn't match? So about the strains that did match, um, one of them was uh, the Kolsch strain, uh, where uh, according to um, the, the studies, they, it was a hybrid, but in our uh, trials, it came up as a pure cerevisia strain. And then the other way around, the Southern German Lager strain that according to the studies was cerevisia, and then we detected as a Lager strain. So there was two strains that were what the main studies were reporting didn't match our own results. And that, this was the moment where I decided to go for the next approach and go more on the phenotype okay. part of things. All right. So that takes us to part two. Describe what you did next. What happens in, in brewing or in these strains that used in brewing is that we know a specific growth conditions that are unique to laggers and to ales even before genome was uh, available or the genetic tools were available. We know that, among other things, Laggers are very good at growing in cold temperatures, but very bad at growing at warmer temperatures. So we decided to use that as a very simple uh, procedure uh, because we could just inoculate the plate with some cells, put one at 28, 30 degrees and as a control and another one at 37. That's uh, usually the cut line where uh, lagger strains can no longer survive or survive very poorly. Uh, and we could easily differentiate between uh, Eubianus uh, rich genome or a pure cerevisia genome. So it was very, it's very simple. Uh, we just basically created dilutions of uh, a yeast culture just to see that effect of them dying slowly. Like you, sometimes you see uh, a protection when you have a lot of cells, they protect each other from stress. So by creating this uh, decimal dilution, uh, up to the fifth uh, dilution, you end up with uh, individual cones and you can see much more easily if they are struggling or not than just a, a big drop. And then we just, a little bit like we did with the DNA, we selected the strains, strains that are known and we are very confident that they were laggers or that they were uh, cervizia. And then we just inoculate from the exact same culture in the exact same dilution, uh, one plate that we put at 30, and one point that we put a 37. What, what, why, why is the 37 sort of the magic number? Uh, it, it comes down to, to the strains them, uh, themselves. Eubayanus can survive at, until 34, 35, the, the parental strain. So the original uh, parent of the Pastorianus lager strains. So by pushing that limit a little bit, we could almost kill the cells that were uh, enriched in that uh, Eubayanus genome, while the ones that are pure cerevisia should be uh, perfectly fine. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, and then we just—it was very easy. And like, like I said, the whole goal of this was also to be very simple. But then we could confirm that the data from the PCR, so that the zero twenty nine and eight hundred, that were some of the strains up for debate were indeed cervizia because they could grow very efficiently at 37, while all the others, including 051, 515, 
or um, A38 could not, and then therefore they were um, lagger strains. Okay, cool. Uh, just curious, what is the upper limit for for those strains that could survive at 37? How much how much higher can you go than that? Most Cerevisia strains struggle up to 42, probably something like that. That's uh, some of the tests done for this. Um, it also comes down with the growth media. This growth media we selected is a lab grade, very rich and very, um, is nutrient rich basically. So the strains are in a very good condition. So the only stress was uh, the temperature, but sometimes when you c- couple that with another stress, those uh, one of the stress uh, is fine, but when you put two, sometimes they can no longer grow. But I would say that uh, on average around 40 to 42, most strains would stop growing except maybe some of the quike. Okay, so um, I guess what, what are the big takeaways from your from, from all this? Uh, the, this was um, not uh, one of those breakthrough uh, discoveries. It was just a way of, in a way, showing people what they are using. Uh, not necessarily that they need to be using it uh, differently, but there are a lot of things that we've been using for a very long time in a certain way that... Then when we do an analysis, it does not match. So sometimes there's value in analyzing things, but it's not necessarily means that you are doing something, using it in the wrong way. Just the, the in this particular case, the strains perform well enough in these abnormal conditions like very cold fermentations with WP800, but it's still a perfectly good strain that it does the job. So this was a little bit more to explain to people what they sometimes find in their own uh, in-house testing. So they they understand what they should test for, what the results mean, and that there is very low tech solutions and that you don't necessarily need to sequence everything, to QPCR everything. Sometimes you get a lot of information if you know what you are looking for in very low cost, low tech solutions. Great. So I mean, do you think that folks should experiment with fermenting some of those strains like WLP 800 or 051? Um, at warmer temperatures? I'll for sure be very curious about the results. Um, I, I tried to pitch this to the brewers at White Labs and, and they, they were not, uh, split in uh, how, how enthusiastic they were in taking this one up. Um, but I, I think it gives another tool to the to brewers. Uh, if you know that that strain uh, is potentially working better in a wider range of temperature than what you expected, it could be that you can manipulate 800 up or 051 down, depending what you are trying to do. You always have to uh, expect that if you put a warmer tra- a strain uh, or a lagger strain or a strain that evolved to behave like a lagger, like the WP800 seems to be, if you put it up warmer, it will probably be cleaner than most ale strains at that temp- uh, uh, temperature, but potentially it will be more fruity or more estuary than it was at a lower temperature. So is is a, a game of um, what you are compromising in something and a different result will come, but potentially the result is not as bad as you expected and you, maybe you can take, save some tank time or you can save some energy on laggering, things like that, uh, and have um, a better fermentation. But that comes to the cost. So if you are doing something outside of where these strains were meant to be, you probably come uh, have to pay a, a small price for it. Fair enough. Uh, any uh, predictions or thoughts about like 
let's say a brewer one is already using 800, you know, uh, to, to make lagers. Um, and they want to, they say, well, gee, now I, I, I can get away with fewer strains and I want to just use 800 to make both ales and lagers. Um, any predictions on how that strain might behave kind of bouncing back between the two extremes? So, you know, coming off of a lager fermentation and then, and then pitching it into an ale fermentation and then, and then vice versa in terms of temperature ranges. I would say that it's probably not so much of a, a, a problem or a, a, a bigger problem. When you'd go from cold to warm, uh, these strains, uh, they will go basically from a nice condition to potentially a better condition for them. They'll have grow more, uh, uh, be in better shape. Going back to the cold and then doing this back and forth, then, then this is a good way of potentially stressing the cells uh, or getting them to express genes on flavor that flavor-wise are not the most uh, attractive ones. Uh, so usually it, it is better to keep the cells either in the same conditions so that you expect same fermentation. So you harvest and repeat something in the same type of beers. But when you usually go in a particular off direction, it's always probably recommended that you don't come back. So it's a little bit like with high alcohol, you should always go in increasing levels of alcohol, but they get stressed. So coming back all the way to original gravities, that batch is probably not the best one. Talk about how this project underscores the importance of keeping things simple. Sometimes people get overwhelmed by the options that they have these days. So everyone thinks that they need a QPCR and everyone thinks that they need fancy expensive equipment that is super fun to work with uh, but what most people should be worried about is documenting everything uh, if you see so that's a message that i i go and give a lot to brewers if you see your attenuation going down or your ph going down differently than the previous 10 generations you know you have a problem and you don't need a qpcr for it so if you know that the Usually you have a 10-day attenuation curve, and now it's 12. You have an issue. Sometimes people get trapped in this very fancy um, equipments uh, that in not knowing exactly what they are measuring, they may get into a trap of uh, too much confidence. A, Q a PCR is an amazing machine. A QPCR is even a, a more amazing one. But they only test what you ask of them. So if you are testing for bacteria, you are not testing for wild yeast. And even if you are testing for a bacteria and wild yeast, there's a limited amount of um, species that you are testing for. So sometimes you think your process is um, good, but you are actually not seeing the, the entire problem. So sometimes simple things like plating give you more information that something is there than a qPCR that you selected the wrong test for. So a little bit, that's what a little bit what also came in the decision of how to conduct this test was to basically select the simplest ways that anyone can replicate and make sure that people understand the results so that everything is very clear. That was Fabio Faria Oliveira here on the Master Brewers podcast. I really hope I got that pronunciation right. Fabio, my apologies if I didn't. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. 
There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.